Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today, after a gap of, I don't know, something like four years, seems like 20 years, I am delighted to be speaking once again with the one and only James Corbett, who I'm quite sure needs no introduction for the 99% of uh, TMR listeners. But uh, for the sake of the 1%, I mean the 1% uh, (laughs) who may not uh, know him, let me say that James Corbett is the general genius behind the multimedia open source intelligence news source called The Corbett Report, which since... 2007 has been providing independent critical analysis of politics, society, history and economics and dealing with issues such as 9-11 truth, false flag terror, big brother, police state, eugenics, geopolitics, the lot. James, welcome back to TMR after all this time. It's great to be speaking with you again. Well, thank you for having me back on. And I must say that our uh, one of our previous conversations on the New World Order generally is one of those ones that I like to highlight in my archives as a particularly interesting and enlightening conversation you you made me sound good so i very much appreciate that and very much appreciate your interviews i made you sound good how ridiculous you always sound good james <laughs> um yeah and the last time we spoke we were talking about being there weren't we that you uh, invited me on to the corporate report to talk about that exactly was, right yes yeah. for people who haven't checked that out you should check that out I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes when i post this and i hope you will too um it was a good conversation and i was just thinking about yeah. that the other day actually uh and how at the time we were sort of mapping that onto Obama being the obvious president at that moment, but perhaps equally true of Trump. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> um, anyway, before we get on to today's subject, which is this wretched great reset that everybody's talking about at the moment, uh, I just wanted to ask you how things are in Japan. I mean, are you experiencing these similar waves of COVID-19, COVID-1984, let's call it that, lockdowns and the like? Well, I've done a couple of videos updating my audience on this that are in the questions for Corbett series. So people can check into my website if they want the detailed answers. Um, But essentially, incredibly, amazingly, unpredictably, Japan has managed somehow to avoid the type of lockdown and insanity that has swept so much of the globe this year. Uh, If you had explained 2020 to me at the beginning of the year and what was going to happen and then asked me to predict which countries would seem to avoid the hysteria the most, I would certainly not have picked Sweden and Japan out of that hat. But here we are. Mm. And yes, I can say that there has been no hard lockdown. In fact, well, as the politicians here claim at any rate, well, it's the Constitution. It binds our hands. It doesn't allow us to do such things as force businesses to shut down. All we can do is recommend closures and and the like. Um, But as we all know, these types of constitutions are generally not worth the paper they're written on. And there are clauses in the Constitution that a pretty large truck or lorry, as I suppose you would say, could be driven through uh, quite easily. So it's still very interesting to me that they have not tried to um, get on this agenda too much at this point. Although I have predictions that uh, if and when the 2020 Olympics actually takes place in 2021, as they are currently planning, I would very much expect that that will be the global PR rollout of the biosecurity police state. And I'm sure they will have all of the whiz-bang technology ready for biometric screening and COVID passports and the uh, like in order yeah. to gain entry. So I'm I'm bracing for that. Right. And what about antivirals over there? Are they rolling those out for people or is that suppressed as it seems to be elsewhere? 
I have not really been following it closely because it is hmm. just such a non-issue where I am living specifically at any rate. I know there are there's the case-demic that's taking place in Tokyo and other spots, hot spots around the country where, you know, testing equals more cases. So uh, it is more of a concern hmm. there. In the rural part of Japan where I'm living, there's really hasn't even been a case-demic. So I really am not following. I understand that remdesivir was being tried here and oh. other such things, but I, I don't really follow that. But I do know that the Japanese government government does have a deal with AstraZeneca to provide, I believe, 100 million doses of their yet to be finalized and approved vaccine. Um, uh, right. I'm okay. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, that, that, that yeah, because I was following this thing called Camastat Mesolate, which is an antiviral drug, which I thought was located particularly in, in Japan. I just wondered how big that was in the health industry over uh, there. It, it very well could be. I'm not up to speed on that. Sure. Okay, as I say, we're going to be talking about this so-called Great Reset, courtesy of the World Economic Forum. And the keenest advocate seems to be this chap called Klaus Schwab, or I suppose he's German, isn't he? So Klaus Schwab. Um, And you did a really interesting video a few weeks back on this subject, so it's good to have the opportunity to pick your brains about it. So can we start with some, I mean, you always say, let's start with definitions. So can we do that? Can we start with some definitions of what is the World Economic Forum? What is this great reset? And who is this strange, strange individual, Klaus Schwab? Excellent questions. And perhaps we can split them into three different questions. So you have what is the World Economic Forum? What is the Great Reset? And who is Klaus Schwab? Mm. The second one, I think I have a fairly good handle on, at least in its broad outline, to the extent that anyone can really encompass such an agenda. But the first and third questions are still very much question marks, even in my own mind. I can give you the Mm. sort of Wikipedia basic biographical sketch of the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab, but they don't go very far into either subject. For example, you can find out that the World Economic Forum was founded in 1971 as the European Management Forum. And its initial conference, which was held at the Davos Congress Center in 1971, brought together 444 executives, interesting number, from Western European firms. And it was Klaus Schwab's attempt to introduce American business management practices to European businesses. And I'm not sure particularly why that interested him so much. But at any rate, that was the ostensible meaning of the first conference. But as Again, the basic Wikipedia type sketch will tell you by 1973, you started to have the oil price shocks as a result of the Yom Kippur War and the the uh, desinking of the dollar from the gold standard. So you had massive disruptions going on and they decided that, well, this isn't just about economic issues anymore. This are business issues. It's about the broader social economic context. And so it started to introduce politics. And right. so eventually you started to have annual meetings inviting political leaders and and uh, other luminaries, shall we say. And and somehow or other, this European Management Forum by 1987 had morphed into this World Economic Forum, which is an NGO, mm. and it is based in Switzerland. Um, and I'm sure everyone has at least heard of the Davos Conference, which takes place in January every year and brings together a thousand or so business executives and special in- invitees 
politicians and who have you. Including inexplicably Greta Thunberg, but uh, there we are. Well, yeah, go on. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, it, as I say, luminaries and uh, mm. people who mm. are on, on the inside of various plans and other people who are being used as props for those plans. Mm. Um, and that perhaps shouldn't be surprising. I, I Again, Klaus Schwab, I still have very little on terms of the biographical details of him before he appeared on the scene in 1971, hosting this European management forum at the age of 33, and then uh, going on from there to earn 17 honorary doctorates, I believe, from various universities and things. I mean, the the accolades that are showered on him are quite bizarre, considering he hasn't seemed to actually have done anything in his life. I don't don't understand what it is he has done, other than create this World Economic Forum. I suppose he has got two real PhDs to his name. but uh, Well, that's true. (laughs) Apparently so, at least. uh, That's Mm -hmm. what I read. But I don't understand exactly what it is he accomplished before setting up this forum. But he has been on the steering committee of the Bilderberg Group, Mm -hmm. which may be a more important part of his biography than uh, most outlets would let on. I'm sure your audience is at least familiar with the Bilderberg Group, but if not, of course, that is what I have always considered to be a little bit higher up on the pecking order of the globalist jet set, shall we say, um, than the World Economic Forum. Davos is kind of the, you know... It's almost like for the elite. It's it's more for the hoi polloi of the elite. Uh, <laughs> yes, you you know, it, it's yeah. sort of the the rabble, you know, and then the real leaders go to Bilderberg to actually hammer out plans. That's the way I've always thought about it. And I think this great reset that the World Economic Forum and Schwab are clearly trying to spearhead, I think, in terms of internecine rivalry within the elite, perhaps is an attempt to move World Economic Forum up in the pecking order and make it more of an important player on the globalist scene. So you think it might be his baby and he's trying to make it more important, that kind of thing? It certainly seems that way. And certainly he has the support of some very important players in this, like, obviously, someone like Bill Gates, but also the new head of the IMF, um, Kristalina Georgieva, I believe it is, and uh, various you know banking interests and others that are clearly behind this effort. Mm. And, uh, you know, what do you think of this image we have of him? A lot of people say, you know, he reminds people of Blofeld, you know, (laughs) you just cannot avoid that. I just was thinking about this and I'm wondering whether that is a deliberate parody, you know, (laughs) so that if we criticize him like that, then we're being, oh, you know, we're, we're projecting Hollywood onto reality. We're just, well, you raise that point and it is, it is a fair point insofar as our criticism of this should not center on this person and the way that he Mm. speaks. But, but I really, do look at, for example, the uh, the launch of the Great Reset, which happened in June, and you look at the webcast of that, and it involved Klaus Schwab sitting there in front of this gigantic World Economic Forum blue background with the camera at such a strange angle looking upward at him mm. on this giant stage that he's on. It really, I mean, the, the aesthetics of that are truly truly something out of a Bond film. I mean, whoever was doing that, I can't imagine that they didn't see that and think of the optics of the way that scene looked. It looked very much like that. Or even more so, an Austin Powers parody of it. (laughs) Right. Am I right that he was sitting in a black swivel chair as well? I believe so. Maybe that was silhouetted with the lights. I don't know. Uh, Off the top of my head, that seems about right. Just missing the the white cat. All he needed was the cat, I (laughs) suppose. Yeah, I don't want to, uh, you know, stress that too much, but I just wondered if that was uh, perhaps deliberate. Um, okay, so what about the Great Reset itself? So you said this was announced back in, I think it was June, wasn't it, with this virtual meeting? And we've got people like Prince Charles. You've mentioned the IMF Managing Director, but there's a whole lot of people involved with that. I mean, on the uh, website there, it says that their statements were supported by 
the voices from all stakeholder groups of global society. We'll come back to that term stakeholder, no doubt, in a moment. And then there's a long list of people, CEO of MasterCard, uh, General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation, uh, a representative of the People's Bank of China, CEO of BP. I mean, it goes on and on and on. There's a huge number of people involved with this. Uh, there is. It's like a who's who of the globalist jet set, or at least it's a particular segment of it. And as you note, some interesting inclusions there, including people from the People's Bank of China, which mm. is interesting. That in itself tells something of a story, because let's cast our minds back to the last great disruptive event, uh, economically speaking, uh, the 2008 economic crisis, which as I hope your audience is aware, resulted in such things as the April 2009 G20, uh, in which UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown announced that we need a new world order to save the earth and other such things. And we saw some Mm -hmm. interesting moves that were happening at that time, like the first ever internationally coordinated interest rate cut amongst central banks, uh, or at least the first one they openly, openly collaborated and, and coordinated and other such moves like that, that I think have set some of the chess pieces for the economic moves we've seen in recent years. Uh, And, uh, oh yes. (laughs) Where was I going with that? Yes. Because the the Chinese, uh, the the people's bank of China uh, director at that time was speaking quite openly about the fact that what we needed was essentially, although he didn't use the terminology, a great reset of the monetary order mm. and specifically looking at the IMF's special drawing rights as a potential replacement for the U.S. dollar, which has clearly shown that it cannot be the world reserve currency. It's not stable enough. Yeah. This is a house of cards. We need something like the IMF special drawing rights to become the new international reserve currency. So it is interesting to see players like the People's Bank of China having a seat at the table for the Great Reset, because I think that starts to go at what I believe. Well, I believe this is about a number of different agenda items. I always say that major events like what we're seeing taking place right now do not happen because they happen to check one box on one participant in the globalist jet sets wish list. No, it happens because a number of players are getting a number of boxes checked so they can all agree on this or that, um, yeah. essentially a vehicle for their agenda. So it's not uh, just one. It's It sounds like the ticking of one box, which is you know, resetting debt or something like that, debt cancellation, downgrading debt, you know, by pegging it to a new currency or something at a lower rate, all that sort of thing. But it isn't just that single box. It certainly is not. As I tried to stress in my own coverage of this, which people can find at corporatereport.com slash great reset, mm. uh, I tried to stress the incredible scope of what they are essentially putting on the table right now, which really does affect absolutely everything imaginable from economy to society to government, to uh, technology, uh, to education, environment, all of these things will undoubtedly come under the purview of this Great Reset. But as I say, of course, there are a number of different agenda items that we can see that being checked here. But if there is one that I think underlies it all, I would say it is the monetary side of this. I think we are being put through, let alone prepared, for a type of monetary reset. And that's why Mm. at this exact time we have uh, the head of the IMF and the the, uh, head of the Bank of England and the head of the Federal Reserve Bank in the United States convening international summits, uh, virtual summits on Bretton Woods 2.0 and the new Bretton Woods moment that we've arrived at. And we're talking about central bank digital currencies. I think this is ultimately the basic level of what's going on right now. And 
everything else is a part of that agenda. But uh, I think it boils down to that. And and as you point out, it is interesting to note that this great reset terminology has been used in the past specifically to refer to a monetary reset. That's the way this term has been bandied about for at least a decade that I've been following it. So it's interesting to see them picking up on that terminology specifically for the branding of this agenda that they're forwarding. Okay, so how central to this agenda is all this business about the fourth industrial revolution? We talked to Pat Wood about this at some length in the past. Okay, it's, it's there in Klaus Schwab's writings very clearly. But I mean, do you think most people in the World Economic Forum are on board with this? Or, you know, are they thinking, oh, well, this is, this is Schwab's thing. Is it something that he's overemphasizing? Or do you think it really is central to the Great Reset itself? I think we're going to see one way or another. Personally, I don't know at this point, but my feeling is that the monetary transition that we're about to go through will in some way be a key part of that fourth industrial revolution and perhaps the key part, the only part that really matters. The rest may all be fluff and nonsense, but the real key part of this will be the central bank digital currencies, which documentably on the record that they are seeking. And I shouldn't just say they, I should say, for example, uh, ID 2020, I believe is the name of the organization mm, yes. that is seeking to standardize identification in a way that's technologically um, fungible between countries so that all countries can participate within a certain identification system where everyone will be able to share details that they want and and keep other details private and blah, 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 the type of marketing essentially that we usually hear about such things. Uh, these types of organizations are coming together around these various ideas. And I think they all have a part to play in this. And the fourth industrial revolution is I think the really the umbrella term for the vision of this future. And we don't have to go out on a speculative limb to look at what the specific vision of that future is. There's one interesting post um, from about 2016 uh, that was featured on the World Economic Forum website that has been getting attention recently and being tied to this great reset agenda, although it is at this point four years old. But people have probably seen the image of a video that the World Economic Forum put out saying something to the effect of uh, in the the year 2030, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy or something. And um, that stems back to a, a piece that was written by uh, Ida Auken, who is a member of parliament for Denmark, she was writing, here's how life could change in my city by the year 2030. And if you actually go and read the piece that that pull quote, or it's not even a pull quote, it's just a sort of summarization, is painting uh, this image of the year 2030 and what life is going to look like. And essentially the argument is that there are no products anymore. Everything is a service. Mm. For example, it doesn't make sense once you have these driverless cars that can go anywhere. We start to reimagine everything about the way that even the infrastructure, the physical layout of our cities has been designed around this idea that we all own a car, we all park it at home, we drive to where we need to go, etc. Well, in the future, I mean, transportation is going to work much more efficiently because we're going to be able to push a button on our smartphone or whatever equivalent we have 10 years from now and a roaming, roving car will come and pick us up and take us to our destination. And we, we don't need all of this infrastructure we have for keeping our own cars. And essentially, this piece is about imagining that for 
everything, everything you can imagine. We won't need to own anything hmm. and we'll be perfectly happy, except for the people who decided that they didn't want the robots <laughs> doing all the work and the AI to take over. And they live out in the <laughs> yes. countryside. Yes, that's right. Uh, it's an interesting piece. In dilapidated houses. Yes, that's right. I remember that. Exactly right. Yes. Mm. Um, abandoned houses in small 19th century villages <laughs> yeah. is the actual quote. To be honest, I would rather live in that situation rather than what she describes as the living condition where she would have her lounge, you know, and then she would vacate the lounge because there's going to be a business meeting during the next hour. It's, I mean, that's just incredible. Exactly right. Yeah. And, and there is some tongue-in-cheek acknowledgement of that in the piece. For example, she goes on to say, once in a while I get annoyed about the fact that I have no real privacy, nowhere I can go and not be registered. I know that somewhere everything I do, think, and dream of is recorded. I just hope that nobody will use it against me. I mean, clearly there is a bit of acknowledgement of some of the perils of this. And they, just to drive that point home, they have added an author's note to the beginning of this piece, which I'm pretty sure was not here the last time I checked this piece a year or two ago, um, that now says, some people have read this blog as my utopia or dream of the future. It is not. It is a scenario showing where we could be heading for better and mm. for worse. So they're trying to draw attention to this now that it's getting attention or trying to divert that attention, I should say. But I think that does at least start to broach the conversation of where this is heading and why we can't just talk about any one piece of this puzzle. It literally affects everything about the way we are going to live our lives if these people have their way about this great reset. Yes, and I'll just note, I think, I may be wrong, but I think the title to that piece you've just talked about there has changed as well. Yeah, I can't remember <laughs> um, what the original title was, but... It, it was more in your face, so I think it's a little bit softer now than what it was. Well, you, it's mm. one of those situations where the uh, the title that shows up on the screen when you're reading it is, Here's How Life Could Change in My City by the Year 2030. But if you are in a browser with tabs and you look at the tab title... <laughs> It is welcome to 2030. I own nothing, have no privacy, and life has never been better. And I believe that was the original title that they have changed it from. Yes, I believe it was. And uh, I notice also that Klaus Schwab himself, when he talks about these things, he, he also has a caveat saying, you know, I realize there are dangers about this. So we need to together cooperate to shape the kind of future we want, because there are these inherent dangers. So he's playing the same sort of game, really, isn't he? He seems very positive about it all. And yet he does give this little concession. Well, you know, we, we need to be careful. Uh of course. And I think this is the most basic propaganda trick in the book that people should be aware of by now. There is almost never going to be a quote where the evil genius comes out and says, ha ha ha, we have you now. You're going to be our technological slaves. I, I would assume this will never be put in that framework. Uh, it will always be presented as a good or at least a potential good. And we have to shape it the right way. And who's going to steer us into this? But, oh, I don't know, the world. Economic Forum will help with, yeah. with setting this agenda. So I think that it speaks for itself. Um, but there are better and worse ways to understand what's going on right now. But to take his own quotes at face value, I think is horrific enough. And yes. in my Great Reset piece, I did go through one particular article that I thought collected enough of the bone-chilling statements that he makes along those lines uh, called Klaus Schwab and His Great Fascist Reset, mm. where really, I mean, just taking the quotes from his own works, his own words, essentially, uh, really, I think, indicts himself in terms of what he is really aiming at here. Mm. Yeah, this is, I'm slightly ambivalent about, I don't want to talk about this man all the time, but people are characterizing him, you know, in this sort of Blofeld sense. And, and you talked about, you know, the evil genius. I wonder to what extent, you see, people talk about, you know, that they're, they're trying to create this prison planet, you know, they're trying to enslave us all. And I, I do tend to agree that if things go in that direction, we will end up enslaved. 
But is somebody like Klaus Schwab, for example, intending to achieve that as the one who wants to create evil in the world? Or does he have this vision? I think it's a mistaken vision, but he truly believes in it and that his intentions within his own worldview are laudable, if you see what I mean. Yes. Now, I think that will end up in a terrible world. And I think of, uh, you know, that famous essay by Karl Popper called Utopia and Violence, where he argues, and it's exactly this kind of utopianism where you, you have a blueprint for the future and you say, this is what it's got to be. And, and everybody has to agree. And if they don't agree, you stamp on them. Um, that's the great danger with utopianism, you know, rather than everybody agreeing to work together to make the world a better place. That's quite different. Um, so it, does he fall into that sort of utopian category where within his own mind, he is doing the right thing? yet it will end up enslaving us anyway. Well, that's actually, that's very interesting. You've just given me, I, I had, have not read that Popper essay, so I will do so forthwith after we hang up because that is particularly intriguing. And it goes, I think, to what the real heart of the real question here is, which is whether order, which of course is what we are all seeking, we all want order in this world, but should that order be imposed from above by people with a central plan for what we must all do in order to achieve their <laughs> utopia? Or can order arise spontaneously? Which sounds <laughs> unbelievable. How could that happen? But in fact, has been talked and thought about for many years by Hayek and people like that who have devoted a lot of time to that. So I think that actually goes to some of the philosophical roots of this. But I think you're also right to be a little bit hesitant to pin all of this on Klaus Schwab. I agree. I think giving him too much credit, in fact, actually serves his agenda, yes. which I assume is more about self-aggrandizing. Look, I'm the one who's directing all of this, when in reality, I'm not even convinced that he actually writes any of these books that he is co-authoring. <laughs> yes. Because you'll notice that all of his books are co-authored, and I wonder how much percentage of that input actually comes from Klaus Schwab, and how much comes from uh, yeah. named co-author and uh, uh, nameless co-authors, who knows? I think I saw the word ghostwriting with re mm. respect to his book somewhere. I would be flabbergasted mm. if this, I believe, 80-year-old man, or so, pushing 80 at this point, mm -hmm. um, I would be flabbergasted if he was writing all of this or even the majority of it, let alone in the few months of this pandemic crisis that it took to write this great reset book. I, I just don't think Klaus Schwab is <laughs> quite that prolific. You know, color <laughs> me a bit skeptical. Mm. Um, but having said that, I think you, you're hitting on the right question, essentially, which is what most, I think, people in the uh, – how, how can I say this without saying the word normie? <laughs> the average person on the street who is not so uh, clued into ideas conspiratorial might have these kind of hesitant uh, thoughts around these conspiracies that they're hearing about as if there's really this group of people who are really trying to steer the world into a tyrannical prison planet no 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 this is just people who wow. well-meaning they believe they're doing well for the uh, for the earth and they believe they're doing the right thing but they are heading us in a direction that maybe i don't want to go in that uh, i think is the natural human inclination for the average non-psychopathic personality who cannot imagine that there are people who do not see the world in the same way that they do and i will concede that i think that the people who are really directing this agenda, again, I don't believe Klaus Schwab is at the top of that pyramid by any means, but mm. the people who are really yeah. directing this agenda probably do believe that they are doing something great, something good for humankind, to put it most generously, the, the world in general. But of that. course, yeah. that does not mean that it will turn out well for <laughs> you. No. And coming back to this business about order, 
about spontaneous order. They've very definitely, well, he certainly doesn't believe in that. You brought out in your video a very striking quote, which I've written down here. Uh, so this is, I think it's from the book that he co-authored in inverted commas with Thierry Mallory, COVID-19, The Great Reset. So, quote, if no one power can enforce order, our world will suffer from a global order deficit. I thought that was a remarkable quote. If no one power can enforce order, so there's no sense there of anything spontaneous coming from the grassroots. And there's nothing about various um, centers of power. It's, it's one power that has to enforce it from the top. Tremendously disturbing vision. It is to me. And I would assume to most people who really put thought into that, although perhaps not. But I will note, actually, with some amusement, that I did receive uh, one email uh, feedback about that Great Reset podcast that I did. Well, I received many emails, but one in particular hmm. that was essentially taking issue with my conspiratorial view and, oh, you're you're ginning this up and, oh, the, you know, it's, it's, right. it's harmless. And one of the points that that writer made in responding to my podcast was to say, to point out about that quote specifically and to say, oh, and you... And you added the word enforce. And I, and I was like, no. And I actually double checked. I made sure that on screen I had the actual quote. And it, of course, enforce is in there. And it's really in the book. People can go look at the book. He says in one power for enforce world order. This person who was being skeptical about this couldn't bring himself to even admit that word. Because that is so inherently creepy that there has to be a single power that enforces order on the world. Which... I understand why people might believe that to be the case, but they are mistaken in that belief. And as I say, the concept of spontaneous order is a real philosophical concept that has been around, and in fact, an economics concept, really, that's been around for actually thousands of years. If you go back to Zhuangzhou in 4th century BC China, who writing about uh, good order results spontaneously when things are let alone. But uh, more specifically in the 18th century, the Scottish Enlightenment thinkers, then you go into the 19th century of Frederick Bastiat, 20th century of F.A. Hayek, uh -huh. writing about the concept of spontaneous order and the fact that when people are let alone to develop things in their own way, generally speaking, people do want to improve their life. And in order to do so, even just from their own selfish motivations, they will improve the lives of others. That is the way this works. And I'd like to think there's one way to make this penny drop for people. But I would say, what would happen if the government didn't all enforce that we, we use language in this particular way? If there wasn't this panel of people telling us that this word means this and you cannot say anything else or you will go to prison. Oh, wait, there is no such panel. There is no such enforcement. And yet language arises naturally out of our need to communicate with other people. And it's also free enough. There's no policeman who will come and arrest you if you use a phrase incorrectly. Language can evolve and it can change over time. And that's a wonderful thing because it is part of a communal thing, a process that is happening, a communal creation uh, that I hope yeah. might get people to wrap their minds around this. But anyway, I just want to point out there is an, an alternative to this idea that people like Klaus Schwab are on the record saying that we must enforce one particular order upon the world. Mm. One of the amazing things about this, from what you've just said, is that this all sounds very much like 
the new world order, to use that phrase. And yet this, of course, is often criticized as being a conspiracy theory term. And uh, I noticed an interview with a guy called Adrian Monk. He's managing director of the World Economic Forum. He's a fellow Brit. And he's at pains to say there's no conspiracy. The World Economic Forum is just a, a vehicle for getting people who don't normally talk to each other to talk to each other. And the Great Reset is you know, it's just an extension of that. So anybody who thinks there's a scheme afoot, there are people who are perhaps scared, they've lost their job, and they're trying to make sense of the world, that, that sort of thing. So he's very keen to put it that way to uh, allay all our fears. But actually, everything you've said there sounds very much like what, in inverted commas, conspiracy theories have been going on, banging on about for ages, the New World Order. One power to enforce order. Indeed. In fact, I think there's a couple of observations to be made here, one of which is that one of the techniques of propaganda that I have seen deployed time and time again in the 13 years that I've been doing this work and the decades of history that I've looked over during my time doing the corporate report is a pretty basic tactic, but it always seems to work, which is to say that something is a conspiracy theory. That's a conspiracy. That's ridiculous. That's nonsense. We won't have that yeah. until it is out in the open and admitted, in which case, well, of course it's like that. <laughs> How else would you imagine it? Which happens over and over again. And I think this is one of those cases. Yeah. Oh, what, can, what new world order? People working on trying to enforce a single world order. Oh, you're such a conspiracy. And now that it's out in the open, well, of course this is what's happening and there's no secret to it. I would just invite people to notice that tactic being deployed. But wow. secondarily, I will concede that I think that in this particular case, at least with the Great Reset branding of this New World Order idea, there isn't necessarily – at any rate, what we are discussing right now is not the conspiratorial side of it in the sense that it is secret. No, we are discussing the completely open and completely admitted plans of people like Schwab and the people that he's uh, arrayed around himself who are openly discussing these ideas. So it is an open conspiracy, yes. which I know some people have a hard time understanding, but in fact – the Open Conspiracy was a book by H.G. Wells mm. uh, written nearly a century ago. And for people who don't know, they might think H.G. Wells was that science fiction writer. Well, actually, he wrote a number of things, including a lot of nonfiction, uh, including The Open Conspiracy, Blueprints for a World Revolution, in which he wrote of a, quote, scheme to thrust forward and establish a human control over the destinies of life and liberate it from present dangers, uncertainties, and miseries. Oh, that sounds wonderful, <laughs> question mark. And he goes on to propose that largely as the result of scientific progress, a common vision of a world politically, socially, and economically unified is emerging among educated and influential people, and that this can be the basis of a world revolution aiming at universal peace, welfare, and happy activity that can result in the establishment of a, quote, world commonwealth, end quote. So, yes, oh, what a conspiracy theory this new world order is <laughs> that was being written about openly as an open conspiracy nearly a century ago. And you will note from that description the scientific progress, the educated and influential elite will foist upon the world. It sounds an awful lot like what I know you've discussed with Patrick Wood, technocracy. And this is, this is it. It really does. It's incredible. It's almost as if it's written by Klaus Schwab himself, minus some of these sort of economic speak that he likes to throw into things. Exactly. It's amazing that, uh, you know, that particular interview that I heard, the interviewer whose name I don't know, had to characterize people's concerns about this Great Reset 
as something along the lines of, well, you know, people in a, in a hidden room, you know, smoke filled room with, with dark plans. And, and he had to do it that way in order to lay upon it the term conspiracy theory, because they were, as you say, they were talking about something which is an open conspiracy, an open set of plans to do something. You can just go to the website and see it. Yeah, I've got it open, The Great Reset. WEForum.org, Great Reset, there it is. It's interesting how he had to colour it that way in order to dismiss people's concerns about it. It is interesting, isn't it? And of course, this plays on the embedded propaganda term that, again, I'm sure your audience is familiar with, the idea, conspiracy theory, (laughs) as a pejorative rather than a descriptive. Because, of course, we can and I do theorize about conspiracies. And in fact, I recently had a provocatively titled video called I Am a Conspiracy Theorist. (laughs) uh, Because instead, I think instead of running away from that term and doing anything that we can to avoid that label, I think it actually, at this point, it will serve our interests best to embrace that label and to re- yes. repossess that word, so or that term at any rate, so that it refers to what it actually refers to, which is theorizing about conspiracies, which of course happens each and every day for, mm. say, every homicide detective and what have you in the world. Of course, they are theorizing about conspiracies every single day, but they're not the bad kind of conspiracy theorists. The bad kind are the ones that imagine that rich and powerful people conspire to aggrandize themselves and their riches and power. Well, that's that's crazy (laughs) talk. No, of course, that's absolutely just a, a anyone who has observed anything in the in history by studying history will know that this has happened in absolutely every age of humanity uh, that has ever been recorded. And to think that we are the sole exception to this. No, our rulers and leaders would never conspire in order to aggrandize themselves is delusional at best. Mm. Um, but it is such an effective term. And I really think it is effective only because people play into it by, oh, no, I'm not a conspiracy. Oh, no. Oh, and run away from that mm, term rather absolutely. than embrace it. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And I'm going to apologize to listeners because I have promised that I'm going to be speaking to a certain Dr. Matthew Dentith. He wrote a book, we edited a book called Taking Conspiracy Theory Seriously, where he's working in the field of conspiracy theory theory. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, is a lovely term there, but it is exactly taking them seriously and understanding what that term actually means and when it's legitimate to talk about concerns in that sense and when it's not legitimate. So that is still to happen. I, I hope that that won't ultimately fall through. But again, I do apologize for that being such a long time coming. Um, you say that this is not the end of globalization in your video. In fact, you say it is the apotheosis of globalization. Maybe we'll come back to that in a minute, sort of divine element to this. Um, why do you say it's the apotheosis of globalization? And the, the reason why I ask this is because Klaus Schwab himself talks endlessly about this stakeholder capitalism, which I think he may have invented the term, I don't know. And he deliberately contrasts stakeholder capitalism with neoliberalism, which we tend to associate with globalism. So why do you say not only is this not the end of globalization, but it is in fact the apotheosis of globalization? Well, just parenthetically, I note that Klaus Schwab is uh, due to release a book entitled Stakeholder Capitalism next year. Mm Mm co-authored, of course, (laughs) Uh, like everything else (laughs) he's ever written. But anyway, uh, again, I don't know if he coined the term, but he certainly is uh, one of the leading proponents of that idea uh, at the moment. So I think it's important, first of all, to understand um, the uh, (laughs) – hold hold on. What was the question? What what is it? (laughs) The apotheosis of globalization. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, Well, the the question is why do you call it the apotheosis of globalization when he seems to give the impression that it's, well, kind of not going to be business as usual anyway? Right. So I think it's important to understand 
the argument to which I was responding with that statement, because I noted at the time as this was developing earlier this year, as we started to see the shutdown, for example, of international travel and other such things, we started to see some people coming out and say something like, well, this is just a sign that nationalism is right and globalism is wrong. And clearly all of these global supply chain infrastructure and everything that we've created over the past few decades that we're now so reliant on is a creaky system that could fall at the drop of a hat or the beginning of a so-called pandemic. So it will go to the wayside and we'll become more self-sufficient or something along those lines. Mm. And I understand at least the, the sort of initial impulse to see that in the way that things are developing at this precise moment. But to think that, oh, okay, well, it's all over and well, I'll just go back to autonomous nation states that will just be autarkies and basically self-sufficient and maybe a little bit of trade uh, is ridiculous, is patently ridiculous. And it's clearly not the way that the World Economic Forum and their uh, associates are trying to steer the world. No, this is in fact to create an even more efficient net in which to uh, capture the world's population, essentially, which will tie into uh, the aforementioned ID 2020, the COVID passports, all of these types of things. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so I think that this, in fact, actually gives a bit of a boost to the types of agenda items that have been on the globalization checklist for a while that uh, right. have been stagnating because there hasn't been an apparent need for them. Okay. But now yeah, there sorry. is... No, sorry. I thought you'd finish your sentence. Yeah, I could. <laughs> well, I was just going to say now I think that this presents the apparent need to actually form tighter ties. I don't know exactly the way to put it, but at least as has been mentioned, for example, on the Great Reset podcast that the World Economic Forum is doing right now, uh, they've talked about gated globalization as a potential path forward, mm. by which they mean there will be groups of nations with common interests and common ideas that will band together more tightly, essentially, as a result of this, and form trading corridors and form travel uh, agreements and what have you so mm. that their citizens can travel and trade with each other more freely. And that will probably develop among allies and one could imagine the, the five I nation states and, and yeah. such things yeah. forming alliances, as opposed to, say, for example, Russia, China, Iran, those types of, quote unquote, enemy states, which essentially is saying that the world is going to harden the battle lines that have been forming for the last couple of decades around some sort of NATO allies versus Russia, China, Iran, Axis kind of that that idea, which has been there, I think, in developing for decades. I think that might be hardwired into global relations as a result of this. So it might not be globalization in the final stage of total government, uh, world government control. It may look something more like the world of 1984, where you have uh, Eurasia, oh, yes. uh, East Asia, who's <laughs> sure. at war with who, and uh, whatever the government says today is whatever we're going with. Um, it might be more of that sort of world, but I think it amounts to essentially the same thing in which essentially populations that are completely controlled or at least completely surveilled and tracked and registered at all points will be told where they are allowed to go and what they're allowed to do and when and with whom and for how long. And they will have to obey those edicts mm. because eventually their universal basic income will be tied to their social credit score, which will be yes, yes. the thing that they buy and sell. <laughs> it, it, one can see how this plays out. 
unfortunately. Yeah, I suppose from their point of view, you've got to take seriously the geopolitical realities that exist if you're going to try and bring everybody on board with this. You know, I, I see this as a, an attempt to transcend, not to ignore those, as you say, you know, the NATO or the China and, and Russia and Iran and all you know, not to ignore all of that, because if you do, you're just going to have those tensions in play against what you're trying to do. But if you can transcend that and say, well, there's a bigger umbrella in which everybody can be involved, but we still keep our individual distinctives, then there's a hope of actually producing this new world order. I guess that's the way they're thinking. That is my take on this, at least for the time being. Um, I think at a certain point, perhaps the pretense that there really are different players at the table will fall away. Uh, because at the base, I think regardless of the extent to which every party involved in all of these shenanigans is a witting and knowing player in a conspiracy, is somewhat irrelevant because I think Ultimately, what drives this is a commonly held ideology, oh, yes. which yes. I think is quite common to all of the would-be elites and ruling factions of all of these different countries, which is essentially – I keep going back to the, the base philosophy or idea of eugenics um, because I think it really provides an insight into the mentality of the players at this table, which is essentially that they truly believe they are special, that they are specially gifted to govern others and thus actually have the right or the obligation to do that. And that's such a powerful insight into what is happening right now, because that really does explain why seemingly disparate interests from different countries ultimately end up going in the same direction. That's why, for me, it's particularly fascinating to study the propaganda that comes out from the US and the UK and, and the Western nations about China. Mm. Of course, China is the ostensible enemy, or at least certainly not part of the allies, shall we say, of the, <laughs> you know, the Anglo-American empire. Um, so it is always portrayed as sort of the enemy other, and it's the evil Chicoms. And look at the terrible things that they do to their population. But that is always tempered with a little bit of, wouldn't it be nice if we could do that to our populations? And especially this year, we have seen that particular note tinge to a lot of the propaganda that's coming out about COVID-19. And look at the terrible, harsh crackdown that China did. But they've been so successful in containing this dreaded disease. Wouldn't it be great if we could crack down like that? I would just invite your listeners to note that particular argument because it pops up again and again. And I think it speaks to the fundamental mindset of this, that it is a, a would-be self-appointed or at least people who believe themselves to be elite, technological elite, economic elite, technocrats, essentially, who believe that they are better able to rule over other human beings and thus have the right to do so. Yes, isn't there, I mean, it may be apocryphal, but isn't there some quote by David Rockefeller where he said he admires China or something? I, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> Maybe you have access to that quote. From a China Traveler, uh, which was essentially an obituary of sorts uh, that was written for Mao upon his death, in which he said that uh, the revolution that Mao had started was a great social experiment. <laughs> he went on to praise it, essentially. Of course, this social experiment resulting in an arguable number of tens of millions of deaths. It depends on which uh, particular figure you're going from, but at any rate, tens of millions of deaths. But I guess you can't make a globalist omelette without breaking some eggs, by which we mean human lives. Yeah, right. Well, can I just come back to this stakeholder capitalism idea? I'd like to get your thoughts about this. Um, there's a quote here from Schwab. He says, uh, stakeholder capitalism, quote, um, a model I proposed a half century ago 
which positions private corporations as trustees of society, and that's clearly the best response to today's social and environmental challenges, private corporations as trustees of society. Now, the the impression I get from this is that somehow we are supposed to trust these massive unelected, of course, corporations clubbing together to call the shots on a global scale. We're just supposed to trust them to act in everybody's best interest as these trustees of society, looking after everyone, looking after the planet as well. And yet these are corporations and people with not such great a track record of doing that kind of thing. Um, what's your understanding of what stakeholder capitalism means as opposed to shareholder capitalism? Well, I think that Schwab and his buddies would uh, would take issue with the way that you've framed that particular argument, because no, we are not supposed to simply trust these corporations. We have to hold them to standards. So our good friends at the World Economic Forum are currently drafting the standards that they will be held to, <laughs> yes. uh, specifically around the concept of ESG. This is something that you are going to increasingly hear about in the future. Um, it is already being bandied about quite liberally on the Great Reset podcast that the World Economic Forum puts out, which is a great insight into their propaganda at any rate. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Responsibilities that each corporation has, and they are working on the types of categorization, classification, a sort of standardization of ways that we can rate and judge how corporations are performing with regards to, for example, their environmental responsibilities, with regards to their social responsibilities, with regards to their governance. And of course, it will be the World Economic Forum that comes up with those standards. So we have to trust them. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The, okay. the, the, the trust moves up a level. But don't worry, the World Economic Forum is a nonprofit, non-governmental organization that's there for our good. Um, but in order to understand this stakeholder capitalism idea, we have to understand where it comes from. In actual, real interactions between average human beings, you, for example, might have a service or a product that you're looking to sell and I might want your service. So I'll, I'll pay you and you do the service and we're happy. So in that model, I don't even know if you would call that capitalism. I suppose it depends on a number of other factors. But at any rate, in that model of voluntary exchange, you are there to provide a service or a product to someone and you make them happy and they become a happy customer and you flourish. That sounds like a pretty good I mean, obviously, there can be deceptions and fraud and trickery and what have you. But as a general concept, I think it's a, a very good way for humans to relate to each other. But then we start to, well, grow more complicated and we, we form these corporations. So now it's not individuals providing services or products to individuals. Now we have groups of individuals who are providing products or services on a massive scale. So in order to facilitate that, we need investors into these massive corporations to facilitate the capital that's required for these large outlays. And so, well, then you have shareholder capitalism. So you have people who have shares in the company. And so the company, the corporation has a responsibility to their shareholders, not to their customers, mind you, to their shareholders to constantly increase profit by any means. And that's an actual part of their mandate as corporations. They have to provide or they have to yes. do their best to provide profit for their shareholders. And anything else is an externality, isn't it? That's the, uh, the exactly phrase that's right. uh, yes. often criticized, yeah. especially with regard to the environment. Exactly. And so the people come along 
uh, like the Klaus Schwab's of the world will come along and say, look, you see that system, that's wrong. And that's obviously causing problems, environmental problems, problems uh, with people who are people who are working 20 hours a day and still can't can barely put a roof over their family's head, etc. And there's other people living in total luxury uh, who are basically doing nothing. This is a broken system. This isn't working. So what we need to do is to not make it about shareholder capitalism, but stakeholder capitalism, as in everyone who has a stake in what that corporation is doing. And that could be everyone in the community. Of course, (laughs) again, the environmental problems affects everyone or the way that a company is treating its workers ultimately affects people in that community, etc. So we all have a stake in these corporations, even if we don't have shares in those corporations. So we should all have a say in the environmental, social and governance responsibilities of these corporations. And since it's a bit unfeasible to literally bring everyone in the community into this conversation, don't worry. Our good friends at the World Economic Forum are the technocrats who are going to create all of the different criteria and hoops that these corporations will have to jump through in order to get approved and yada, yada, yada. Of course, this is about centralization of control. And the ultimate vision for where this economy is heading is even further consolidation of the economy, if that can be imagined, in the hands of a few megalithic corporations that span the globe and uh, have billions of customers. And how can we... Just the average single consumer, you know, at our level, how can we possibly have any sort of sway over these corporations? We need something like the World Economic Forum to come and rein them in for us. And that is, I think, part of what they're trying to position with this whole stakeholder capitalism idea. And it's very unfriendly to the small business, isn't it? Because there's no way in which a small business can cope with all... Well, not just recommendations, are they? They are standards which will have to... Mandates. Mandates, indeed. They just won't have the resources to do that. Exactly. Especially this year. To be pushed out of the market. Exactly. This is what is Mm. really coming to a head this year that we are seeing right now. And that's why some of the most interesting pushbacks against the entire COVID-1984 situation are happening at the level of small businesses like Adamson Barbecue in Toronto, a barbecue restaurateur who wants to simply open his restaurant and allow people who want to come there and know the risks that this terrible, deadly plague is wreaking on the world, but want to come there and buy some barbecue. He opened his doors against government orders to shut them and got arrested for doing so. And those types of actions really speak to what is happening right now, which is a concerted attempt to eliminate or at the very least, certainly uh, decrease the role of small businesses in our society. Note very well that the largest corporations have made billions upon billions of dollars Mm. throughout this pandemic crisis. And in fact, specifically because of this pandemic crisis, because Amazon and Walmart and these other major corporations are being declared essential services that can and must remain open while the average, say, barbecue restaurant has to close its doors, taking an already highly tilted playing field and tilting it even further in the uh, favor of these corporations. And that's not by accident. That isn't a fluke. That is part of what the Great Reset is about, is eliminating competition for these megalithic corporations that will increasingly dominate the world. Yes. um, Something you said there about that small business defying the orders there gives me a sense of hope. And there's something I want to come back to a little later. I don't want to major on it just at the moment, but it's related to the fact that you said the Great Reset is not an 
event. It is intended to be a process. It will unfold over time and therefore give us the opportunity not to cooperate with that over time. I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, You say so, therefore, it's a transformation that is in view here rather than an event. And you point to quite an alarming set of infographics at the World Economic Forum webpage here. I've got it in front of me with this particular one has COVID-19 right in the middle and has all manner of aspects of life ringed around it, all interconnected like a spider's web. And they have a number of these maps. Just gives the impression that they are thinking about all aspects of life and transforming all aspects of life. And you brought this down eventually to the notion that what they really want to do, or certainly people like Schwab want to do, or are inspired by the notion of, is changing the very nature of humanity, which of course is a transhumanist agenda. Now that's very alarming. Can you tell us to what extent that vision is something, in your view, realistic? Or is this just, you know, has Klaus Schwab been watching too much sci-fi? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it, it very well could be the latter. But uh, let's outline this carefully for people, because again, this does sound like crazy mm. conspiracy theorizing here. So it is important to understand that I am not making this up. This definitely comes from Klaus Schwab, who, for example, in a recent speech uh, to the Chicago Council on Global Affairs about this topic, said In his own words, quote, what the fourth industrial revolution will lead to is a fusion of our physical, digital and biological identity. And uh, he elaborates on this in great detail in the book, which he totally authored all by himself with maybe a little (laughs) co-writer about the fourth industrial revolution, where he talks about some of these technologies and processes that are becoming possible. And of course, again, it starts in exactly the same way as all of these things. Oh, it's a wonderful thing and it's going to free us all. For example, he says, consider the unlimited possibilities of having billions of people connected by mobile devices, giving rise to unprecedented processing power, storage capabilities and knowledge access. Or think about the staggering confluence of emerging technology breakthroughs covering wide ranging fields such as artificial intelligence, robotics, the Internet of Things, autonomous vehicles, 3D printing, nanotechnology, biotechnology, material science, energy storage, and quantum computing, to name a few. But things start to get very creepy very quickly, where he starts talking about, for example, all things will be smart and connected to the internet. For example, animals. Mm -hmm. As he says, sensors wired in cattle can communicate to each other through a mobile phone network or smart cell factories, which could enable the accelerated generation of vaccines, mRNA vaccines, I'm sure, um, and then uh, delivering new and innovative ways to service citizens and customers. Uh, For example, establishing trust in data and algorithms used to make decisions will be vital. Citizens' concerns over privacy and establishing accountability in business and legal structures will require adjustment in thinking as he goes on to elaborate about the ways this is going to penetrate into the business space. So there is certainly some technological utopianism to the types of things that he is trying to paint in, oh, this will be a wonderful nirvana. Um, But unfortunately, there is actually in reality some technologies that are developing right now that uh, will progress in the coming decades Mm -hmm. one way or another, uh, assuming they are uh, take their natural course, uh, which will utterly transform the way we think about the way that we live. Um, One that, for example, that I've covered on my own program is 3D printing, Mm -hmm. which in its current form, as it stands today, is 
still pretty amazing, but definitely, definitely in its infancy. And once we extend the idea of 3D printing out a couple of decades, we start getting towards some sort of Star Trek uh, type -hmm. technology of creating matter out of nothing, essentially, or at least what appears to be that way. Um, Again, how much of this do we have definitively nailed down that we can say this is going to happen versus how much of this is pie in the sky thinking at any rate, it's already a technology that we can see over the past couple of decades, the type of progress that's already been made. And although I disagree fundamentally with the Ray Kurzweil's of the world and the other transhumanists on so many other things. I tend to agree that uh, Kurzweil is right in identifying the exponential nature of the acceleration Mm. of change when it comes to technology, that when you look at the development of computing technology, it does show a doubling of processing power every few years or whatever the Schumer's law holds. Do you think that somebody like Schwab then is just pointing to the reality of what is going to happen. But I get the impression that he seems to be celebrating, you know, particularly with this, this phrase keeps coming up, what does it mean to be human? It's almost as if he is relishing this philosophical question. Mm. I find that very worrying because it, I'm not convinced that he and other people like him have any standard in their minds as to what a human being is and what the natural rights of, well, I mean, mm. How can there be natural rights or something you can't even define? That's very worrying in itself. Mm. Um, I have this quote here, which pins it very much down to the transhumanist. You know, all the technology you were talking about. This is from him, or the ghostwriter. Uh, Today's external devices, from wearable computers to virtual reality headsets, will almost certainly become implantable in our bodies and brains. Exoskeletons and prosthetics will increase our physical power, while advances in neurotechnology enhance our cognitive abilities. We will become better able to manipulate our own genes and those of our children. These develop raise profound questions. Where do we draw the line between human and machine? What does it mean to be human? I'm not convinced that their worldview will, generally speaking, will give them any anchor hold in there at all. And therefore, what would we, can I even say we, (laughs) but for the sake of convenience, I have to say we, what would we human beings become in this technocratic system, this technocratic machine, other than cogs, a little almost indefinable terms in an equation, in a kind of a big energy equation. We're just one term in the equation to be tweaked according to the good of the whole. That's really disturbing vision there. But I, I think that's implied if one doesn't have any grounding for the definition of a human being, and especially if one is almost relishing the thought of that being beyond one's grasp. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I know exactly what you mean. You've put your finger directly on the pulse of one of the core areas of what this is all about. And to put it in Star Trek terms, what you're essentially describing is the creation of the Borg. And what role is there for any individual in the Borg collective? Of course, it doesn't matter if a particular node in that network gets removed or whatever happens to it. The network remains, the hive uh, maintains uh, itself and thrives. And that is such a Such a bizarre and alien concept, I imagine, for most people out there to wrap their minds around. But you'll notice it does come up in Klaus Schwab's thinking specifically. Uh, For example, that quote that I read earlier about the Internet of Things will connect people and things to the Internet in this kind of vast network. And he immediately goes towards, well, animals, we can connect cattle through our mobile phone networks to the part of this Internet of Things in order to track and trace them and understand their biometric readings and whatever else we need to do with them in order to understand what the cows are dreaming about (laughs) ostensibly. Well, uh, but notice the, the elision there between 
animal and human uh, and well how about organic and inorganic i mean if we're going to merge our physical and biological and electronic digital identities what what does that mean then do we need a physical body it's so interesting that you honed in on that phrase because back in 2012 i wrote an introduction a forward to a book called Revolve, Man's Scientific Rise to Godhood by Aaron Franz, who uh, was the documentary filmmaker behind a documentary called The Age of Transitions. Yes. Um, I've spoken to him. Yes. And his uncle. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Great. Excellent. Well, I wrote the foreword to his book Revolve, and that foreword starts with the words, what does it mean to be human? Hmm. As a young boy, that question struck me as the stuff of Star Trek, the type of inquiry that would provoke an arched eyebrow from Commander Spock or a head tilt from Lieutenant Commander Data. Not, in other words, a topic for serious debate. Growing up in a household dominated by males, myself, two brothers, and my father, my poor beleaguered mother had to put up with all manner of action movies, crude comedies, and, of course, Star Trek. Always Star Trek. (laughs) Yes. Like many a young nerd, I was hooked at an early age on this strangely utopian fantasy of a post-racism, post-scarcity, mostly peaceful future. And like many a young nerd, it instilled in me a fascination with space, a love affair with science, and a conviction that all the world's problems will eventually be solved by technology. And as I go on to write in that forward, it continues to circle around this question, to this question, ultimately, What does it mean to be human? And where do we start drawing those lines? Because if we do not have a fundamental, basic statement, formulation of what we are as human beings and what that entails, then we do not have solid ground to actually resist what is going on. You will note that the Declaration of Independence, which I I am not a political person, I am an anarchist, but as far as political documents go, I would say that the Declaration of Independence comes the closest of any that I've, I've read at any rate to expressing something fundamental about humans and the way that they come together or fall apart. And you will notice it is predicated on the fact that all men are created equal endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Yes. And with if we do not get down to that basic level of defining what we are as a species mm-hmm. and what that entails in terms of having rights, for example, then essentially we can be written off mm-hmm. into some whatever techno-utopian fantasy or dystopian nightmare, as I'm sure we can all see it's heading towards. Yes. So I think yes. it has to come down to that question. It really does. And if we don't secure that in some way, then it seems to me that what will have the rights will just be the whole. At least that will be the front. That'll be the conceit. It's the whole that has the rights, you know, the, the whole natural order, the good of the whole. And of course, those who really do have, well, not the rights, but the power will be those who are defining what the whole means and, and all that sort of thing, of course. Um, that almost seems like, um, well, almost a, a cult-like, a religious cult-like view of things. You know, there's this sort of faith in progress and Schwab almost comes across as a high priest and this set of beliefs is to be imposed upon us whether we like it or not. It's not as if we, you know, we're being invited to join in this of our free will. I mean, it's painted that way. You know, we can all be, we can all be at the table. We can all help to shape the future, but I know very well that I will never be at the table with any of these people shaping any of it, you know. Um, so I get the impression that there is a sort of cult-like aspect to this. Well, as I say, I keep going back fundamentally to eugenics as one way of getting Mm. my head around the way that these people conceive of the world and conceive of themselves within that world to the extent that to some extent you can say that they truly believe that they are genetically 
different and superior to average human beings, which I know, again, it sounds outlandish to the average person out there who does not hold these beliefs. But it is important to understanding sort of the basic place that these people are coming from, um, generally speaking. And just to play into what you're talking there as, you know, Klaus Schwab setting himself up to be some sort of high priest of a cult, uh, I will note with some amusement the uh the picture that has been going around the twitter sphere lately of one of his the conferring of one of his honorary doctorates from some university or other where he is dressed up in some bizarre i don't know klingon like garb or something <laughs> it is so strange that that exists but apparently that is what all graduates of this particular university dress in Excellent. but that has been making the rounds i think on a more serious note because it seems to correspond to that that idea that you're pointing out there that this is like some foreign religion or something that is being foisted on the masses and that's kind of the way that we see this strange pronouncement from this guy who essentially came out of nowhere like who knew klaus schwab's name before this year and <laughs> and suddenly he's the one who's going to be deciding the way that humanity is going to be mm. governed in the future and even what humanity is what what is happening here so i think people are trying to process that in whatever mm. you know meme like forms that they they have at their disposal it's a great pity he doesn't wear that gown in his public pronouncements because you freak everybody out. Um, I, I actually yes. remember when I went to a you know one of these degree ceremonies once there was somebody up on stage dressed like a bee. I thought it was extraordinary. It must have been one of these honorary honorary people, mustn't it? Um, yeah. Okay. So really, this leads to the final question, which was something I said that I would pick up on to do with non cooperation. So you said that this is painted as an event, you know, with a reset button, isn't there? There's that sort of mental image of pressing the button and it's all going to be either going back to normal or back to the dreaded phrase, the new normal. You stress that it is not an event. It is a transformation. It is intended to be a transformation that will unfold over time. And I see hope in that because if it is taking place over time, we're in a position of being required and being encouraged to go along with that and to accept a certain narrative about that. Whereas we don't have to give our cooperation. We can resist over time. So I find that helpful. So long as we don't buy into this image that it is something that is all set in stone and it happens. If we resist that, we recognize it's over time. There is a power in that. Yes, absolutely there is. And I want definitely the audience to take away this part of the message, because this certainly can get very gloomy, can it not, thinking about the dystopia mm, that absolutely. they are talking about. Um, but that does not have to happen. It is not baked into the cake. And it depends still to this day, it depends on our willingness or unwillingness to cooperate with these systems of control. And it seems overwhelming, but I think that the philosophy and practice of Satyagraha, which was um, a portmanteau coined by, by Mahatma Gandhi, uh, truth power or holding to the truth, uh, roughly interpreted, uh, is going to be important, which is not, again, not just a, not just a philosophy, but also a practice of <laughs> becoming organized in disobedience in a way that makes us uh, not cogs in a machine, but uh, wrenches essentially grinding up the gears of that machine so that it cannot function. Mm. And it is such a powerful and important message that I know people get so lost in the details of, mm. you know, oh, but Gandhi, he was a horrible person because of this or whatever, uh, <laughs> without being able to extract the actual message and practice of that idea, which is mm. so powerful and has been used time and again smartly by certain people in certain times 
to affect great change. And I, I really do believe yes. in the power of an organized disobedience movement. And again, there are many things that we could examine in history that will all be tainted because of this particular connection to this particular person or this thing. But to understand the power of the ability to say no and to stick to that no, no matter the consequences of it, I would suggest uh, we were talking earlier about film literature in the New World Order. Well, one of the last um, episodes of that series that I did was on a story called And Then There Were None. And I'm going to forget the author's name off the top of my head, but uh, people can look it up on my site. Uh, there's a link to that story and also actually a reading that I commissioned of uh, someone actually reading the story. So you can listen to it if you prefer. Um, but it's a simple story about a science fiction future in which there's a, a colony of humans who have populated another planet and the the human empire is essentially going around and has noticed this colony and they want to go and reestablish contact with it. But, the, you know, the old sci-fi cliche, take me to your leader, is <laughs> – particularly impossible on this particular colony because there is no leader. They have essentially established in the, in the entire way the world works that everyone is free to say no at any time and to mean it and to stick to it. And you cannot make anyone do anything. And it's fascinating to watch that play out in that story because it really gives you an idea of the importance of that power of saying no, of disobedience, of not complying. And this is not a new idea. As I've pointed out recently on my podcast, this is a centuries old idea. We can look back 500 years ago to uh, France, specifically to Etienne de la Boeti, who um, published something called the, the Discourse on Voluntary voluntary servitude, um, pointing out this basic fact. Tyrants are able to function as tyrants because people go along with it. At some level, people comply with orders. If people simply refuse to go along with what is going on, it cannot function. And I think the Schwabs and others of the world are trying to eliminate that human factor in all of this, which is part of the desperation for this fourth industrial revolution, eliminating the human, because at this point, they still need human power. They still need humans to operate the machines. They still need our compliance. That's why they invest so much time and energy in propagandizing the public. Mm. And that's mm. why our decisions, our actions today mean literally the future of the human species. I know that sounds outrageously, uh, unbelievably large, yeah. but it <laughs> yeah. really is coming to that. And we don't, again, we don't have to speculate about that. People like Schwab are literally talking about the end of whatever we have understood as humanity being. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. could not take this more seriously. So we have to start seriously thinking about organizing large scale disobedience and as silly as it is, that barbecue restaurant refusing to go with orders and simply opening their doors is such a profoundly important example of what everyone needs to be doing right now um, in their own way. That can take many different forms and everyone has their own unique situation. But that type of resistance to order is what's going to be needed to resist the enforcement of this global order. And that can seem extremely daunting, can't it, for each one of us? How can I, you know, you have the image there of Gandhi in the in the film, Gandhi, of course, you know, standing there on the dirt road with lots of people behind him and the police in front of him. It's very daunting, isn't it? But it strikes me that there are lots of very small things that we can do, which if we all did them, 
would actually have quite an impact. And I'm just thinking of just off the top of my head, you know, stuff like don't download that app. We're told, oh, this is the app you've got to download. Well, just don't do it. Or don't buy the latest technology that's got to push in a transhumanist direction. Don't have Alexa in your house. You know, I, I often talk about let's go back and pull that cash back out of the wall. They are very, very small things. But if we all did it, it would be incredibly difficult to pull this off, wouldn't it? It absolutely is. And that's exactly why we see such things as these apps, these COVID tracking apps and other things being released by various governments. And uh, at first, of course, it's all voluntary. And so th- mm. they want us to buy into these technologies and these ideas and these different things that they're rolling out so that they don't have to do the hard work of enforcing it because it is inherently unenforceable. And think about the types of things we are being told right now. For example, in China, those terrible Chinese, but wouldn't it be nice? uh, They are doing things like uh, making people have QR codes on their phones uh, and they will provide either a green light or a red light essentially as to whether you are allowed to travel past a certain boundary or into a certain area based on your recent covid testing or you know who you've been in contact with or what have you and no one knows exactly why they have a green or a red they're just told it and they get to pass or not and we've been told that that sort of system to some extent or another is likely to be implemented in our countries in the near future the decisions that we make in the coming years to go along with this as it happens or not to go along with it truly will define the course of our history. We are not Mm. spectators in this. We are active Mm. participants and there is no way of just sitting it out. You are making choices by not doing anything. You are making choices by doing something. So you have to do that Mm. consciously. And that's really all I can ask from people is to do it consciously. And as you say, in fact, not only will I say the little things can make a difference, I think the little things will be the decisive factor. If people cannot even flex their muscle to take minor steps like, say, not downloading the app or not carrying their smartphone around everywhere. If they cannot take those minor steps, then, of course, we will never be able to take the major steps. So it is absolutely important that people start at least contemplating what they can do in their own lives to put the brakes on this agenda. Because it is not going in a direction that I think any of this audience really wants it to go in. No, indeed. It is so important to take practical steps, but it is also important to talk about it, which we've been doing. And everybody needs to do this. Gossip with our neighbours about this and say, look, we'll actually go to the website and read this information. You've heard about the World Economic Forum. It's been on the news for decades. Now look at what they're actually suggesting to get that out of the mindset this is just some crazy conspiracy theory, because it's a reality here that's being proposed. So it is important to do the things even the little things, but also it's important to continue to break the narrative of this by discussing mm. it with people. Yes. So uh, thank- Can I just underline that for a moment? Because Yes, do. I, in yes. fact, I recently wrote an article about how to save the world in one easy step, <laughs> slightly tongue-in-cheek, but actually serious about how narrative mm. truly is yes. the thing that is Absolutely. dividing or uniting or directing society in so many different ways, which is why, mm. precisely why so much time is spent on propaganda mm. and propagandizing the public and controlling the the sources of information and approving or disapproving of this particular source. So much time is put into that because what we think and the way we think about the world does matter. And on that note, let me address another section of the audience, not just the skeptical sort, which I'm glad there are mm-hmm. skeptical 
skeptics in the audience, but some others are already convinced of all of this, but are not hearing this in their day-to-day life, or they're being berated by their friends and family for attempting to share this information. So I think it is important to have these types of conversations to let other people know you are not going insane. Yes, (laughs) other people see what you are seeing, and it is important to understand that you are not alone, that when And if and as we act and we rise up and we disobey, there will be others who are there with you. And I think it is important to understand that because one of the most important things that the propagandists tend to do is try to convince you that you are the fringe of the fringe and there are just a few wackos out there that can be (laughs) easily brushed to the side. But I suspect that is not actually the case when it comes to this. Indeed. And it's because that narrative exists there. We're being propagandized with it that I think sometimes we become afraid to share this kind of thing. It has the effect of fragmenting us, doesn't it? There may be many, many people who think in similar ways. We just don't know because the power of that propaganda stops us talking to each other. Very important to transcend that one. Well, thank you ever so much for coming on again after all this time to talk about these very uh, sobering things, very disturbing things. But I think we've we've ended there on quite a hopeful note. Um, I don't think I actually need to point people to your website, do I, James? I think nearly everybody knows you. I I said 99%, but I guess it's probably more like 99.9% of people know your work. But I suppose for the 0.01%, maybe I should after all, CorbettReport.com. That's all I need to say, isn't it? CorbettReport.com. It is indeed. That's the one-stop shop. So let's direct people there. Okay. Thanks ever so much, James, for coming on. It's uh, been a fascinating conversation. Good to speak to you again. I appreciate it as always. Looking forward to talking to you again in the future. Show notes for this interview can be found at The Mind Renewed, themindrenewed.com. Podcast music by the brilliant Anthony Rajakov, attribution non-commercial share alike for International. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, and my guest, James Corbett, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future. <laughs>